When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another uh, interesting, I hope, episode and, and uh, some more thoughts on uh, aquariums and the aquarium-related world. And today we have a really special guest I'm very excited about, um, none other than Ty Streitman. Ty, say hi. Hi there, everyone. Hey, well, Ty, if you, in case you don't know, I'm pretty much all of the really cool uh, photos that we have of the various wild habitats in South America Ty's the man behind them. He's the one that took the pictures. And uh, we're thrilled to have Ty here. Uh, Ty, uh, rather than just me go on and on about you, why don't you just give us like a brief background, um, first of all, what you're doing in Brazil and uh, where exactly you are. And I should just preface it by saying, uh, Ty, I met you a couple of years ago online when you were doing some amazing aquariums, but this is before you went to Brazil. So it's kind of fun to see you in the field now and um, take it away. Well, uh, Okay, um, so I'm doing my master's in animal biology at uh, Federal University here in Campo Grande, which is in uh, central west Brazil. Um, and that basically is on the back of uh, my passion for the hobby. Um, so I, I've never done uh, sciences since I was 16 years old. Um, I ended up uh, graduating in a very different field. But the hobby kept pulling me back to, you know, fish and tanks. Um, that led to me working in a, an aquarium shop for a while, um, which uh, really sort of expanded my, my vision of what was possible. And I started seeing some of your material as well. Yeah. Um, and then that led to a volunteer and later a full-time position at uh, London Zoo in the public aquarium there, um, where I looked after the Amazonian and the Pantanal. How awesome is that? Yeah. Um, and that was a few years ago, but through a sort of very winding path, I've managed to find my, my way out here to Brazil uh, to be closer to the, the fish and the habitats that I've been uh, spent quite a few years sort of being interested in. That's fantastic. Now, what um, where you are right now, are you primarily doing field research or are you doing a little lab and field or what, what's your what's what's going on? So it's um, a bit of both, uh, and it tends to be, you know, two or three days out in the field. So we're doing a survey of all the species in this river delta, in the Salobra River Delta. Mm -hmm. um, so it tends to be going out for a couple of days with a team in the wet season and the dry season, uh, which is quite intense because it's, you know, tropical conditions. You're right. your neck in floodwaters, there's billions of mosquitoes. Um, there's stingrays to be avoided. There's plenty of caiman. Um, it's quite an adventure. And then... Coming back to the lab, which would perhaps seem slightly, you know, of an anticlimax, isn't at all because you've got all this material, these fish, that you then go through and sort out, and you spend many, many hours separating fish that look almost identical. Uh, maybe they're one and a half centimeters long, um, and using a microscope to identify them, and uh, then you suddenly stumble across some gem or something. Um, so yeah, it's a mixture of fieldwork and uh, lab work. I, I quite enjoy being out in the field. Oh, I'd imagine. The, yeah, it's, for me, it's more than the taxonomy. Uh, is seeing the fish in the habitat. But right. you, need, you need each part.
understand uh, understand why and how they live there. So, and th- and that kind of brings me back to like you know I think what you and I have in common as I mean you're a, at the end of the day you're a fish geek. You happen to have a scientific background and you're out there in the field. But yeah. I can, when you're out there, obviously I'm sure you're looking at fish and thinking, "Wow, I'd love to do an aquarium like this." Or or maybe you're not. Maybe you're thinking, "I just don't want to step on that on that ray or run into a caiman." <laughs> but but I mean, when you're um, out there. What 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 do you think in terms of like in relation to aquariums? Are you like wow, this is it's, amazing? It's funny because it, I, I should be thinking about don't step on the ray, right? Um, but I am thinking about oh wow, how can I set this up as a tank at home? Exactly. And I think um, some of the photos that I've, I've sent to you and I've said, oh Scott, look, this would be really cool. It's like a shallow setup um, because I'm lying there in maybe just. 20 centimeters of water <laughs> and looking out at this bed of you know leaves and roots and, and fallen branches and seeing lots of species that are well known in the trade and and seeing just how it could so easily be replicated in a in a tank yeah. um and you could take that little piece of uh, pantanal river and, and set it up in your living room and it really um, it changes your perspective doesn't it getting out there and, yeah. and actually being in the water with them yeah i mean one of the things is it's not just kind of the the habitat dynamic which is you know the, the physical materials but what fish are found together and how do they move so various tetras uh, particularly in, and dwarf cichlids and so on that we the literature seems to separate them you know either by type locality or saying that they don't normally mix with other fish and they're all just together uh, in that habitat and you observe how the dynamic and then you think well actually i could set that set that up in a tank and no one's right. actually done that before or done it the way that i'm seeing it in front of me sure it, exactly and that's that's where you know we come in with is i as you know want to convince as many people as possible to look at those natural habitats take the information that you're getting by you know being out in the field and and yeah. and using that as inspiration instead of just last month's tank of the month on some forum and, yeah. and and I wanted to ask you if I can some specific questions about the habitat that you're spending a lot of time in. Sure. Um, so first and foremost, I guess um, I want to clarify. I, I always often refer to things as an agapo, and I know the, you're not in, a, <laughs> in an agapo. I'm obsessed with that environment. I know you're in the Pantanal, but maybe uh, first you could just tell people you had described when we were talking on Friday. You'd mentioned like the three or four different main types of habitats. If you could just okay. briefly describe that one more time for everybody so they can kind of get a feel for what we're talking about here. And then we'll okay, go so specific. You, so you've got um, the, the Pantanal wetlands are based around uh, principal rivers. For instance, the, the Paraguay River is the main one. Um, and the Portuguese word is, is uh, hue, where the R is pronounced like an H for mm-hmm. some reason. Um, and uh, then you have uh, Hiasha, which is a, a stream, which for what you know, Americans and Brits might consider uh, a a river, Brazilians will dismiss that as a small stream that's <laughs> seven meters across and right. raging. And this is, oh, it's a, it's a stream. Um, which is a, an even smaller stream. Um, and then many of these rivers, they widen out into sort of uh, almost still lagoons, uh, which are called baías. Mm-hmm. So these are areas of the river, which when it floods, uh, they expand quite considerably. The flow drops right down. They flood surrounding areas. Um, you've got... Uh, yeah, the, the local word for igapo it doesn't really exist in the same way. It would again, it would be hiash, or, mm-hmm. or um, there's also varzia, which you know, right. which is the sort of flooded meadows, uh, water meadows around streams that become inundated. Right now, so, 
Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Continue. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> I had a question. No, I was like, ah, oh, i got to ask. You've got, you've got a lot of like temporary pools and lakes as well. Um, that when the rivers flood, they spill into these lakes, and um, then as the water levels drop, those, those lakes become smaller and smaller ponds and isolated, and some of them dry up, similar to what you find in the Amazon. Um, but the, the dynamic here is, is slightly, slightly different. It's more of an open savanna that floods with patches of forest mm-hmm. rather than continuous forest that floods. Now, two questions. Now, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is Pantanal is, is, depends on what river is, is supplying the particular area, but it's typically not black water per se, right? It's more clear water, and then does it become black water when it sits more? Or what, what's the dynamic there in terms of water color? Everybody always asks about that. Um, or is it not even black water? No, no, it's, it's true. There is the, the, the Rio Negro, not the Amazonian one, but the Pantanal one here mm-hmm. in Mato Grosso del Sul, which is your sort of classic black water river. Um, but the, the water colors can change considerably depending on the season. So uh, in, in the dry season, when the water levels are dropping, the flow increases and this lifts up more sediment uh, and more material. So mm-hmm. actually the waters become, the visibility really, really drops down. Uh, you wouldn't want to call it a, a clear water habitat. Um, whereas in the flood season, as the waters expand, the flow drops down, it spreads out over the surrounding uh, countryside, um, and lots of sediment falls into floating plants, is deposited on the bottom. Clarity really comes up, um, and that is then it becomes sort of clear water habitat. Mm-hmm. Now, what what does the substrate consist of typically? I mean, is it, it's it's flooded grassland, right? So essentially, it's yeah. grass and soil and what else do you find down there on the bottom it's interesting in, in the rivers themselves you have a sort of uh, quite a few of them have got lots of sand sort of almost like silver sand consistency but a lot of it is made up of crushed uh, snail shells there's lots and lots mm-hmm. and lots of snails here so you run your fingers through it and actually you think wow this must be really alkaline it's just full of uh, snail shells um, but then you've got along the banks almost sort of clay-like textures and and mud. And then in areas that uh, are exposed to the sun during the dry season and flood during the wet season, you've got soil, but it's not as perhaps we would imagine soil. It's more like sort of a baked clay in the the dry season Mm -hmm. and a sort of silty, muddy substrate in in the wet season as it it becomes uh, soaked. Um, And of course, in the in the areas where there's low flow, this is also mixed in with lots of uh, broken down vegetation. So sometimes you look and you think, "Wow, this this is black sand." It's not. It's just so many broken down it's muck. leaves and twigs and muck. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, not too far away from me, we have a, a more of a highland region uh, on the Bodakina Plateau, which is, is world famous. They have the, in Bonito these clear water rivers there, uh-huh. um, and there the substrate is. is it's caustic. It's it's like coke. It's uh, incredibly alkaline. Interesting. Uh, it's like coral sand, um, and yet you find species that we associate with sort of black water. <laughs> in the, interesting. Now, what's what's funny too is that a lot of people in, in and you know because I've had you answer these on, on Instagram and on Facebook when we when we share your pictures. A lot of people say, "Oh, that's beautiful." What what plants are those? Well, I try to explain them, I and you. Thank you. Thankfully, you backed me up. Most of the time, they're aquatic, they're terrestrial grasses and terrestrial plants that are during the inundation underwater. Correct? You, but you do. Yes. Do you find some aquatic plants there too, or is it mostly terrestrial? 
Um, you do, and you've got semi-aquatic, so um, it's a huge family, but uh, the polygonum family, which includes polygonum SP Sao Paulo and polygonum pink, mm -hmm. um, we've got versions of that here, um, which are very, very typical along the banks, and they, you know, as, as, a, as you see in the photos, when it floods, they go on living underwater quite happily for months and months, and then in the dry season, they're exposed. In terms of aquatic plants, uh, the dominant plant is uh, Ceratophyllum dimersum, which is this cosmopolitan plant we know as hornworts. Right. You find it from, you know, Thailand to Tobago. Um, but here, because it uh, is exposed to the tropical sun, it grows in these great dense mats and it becomes really, really red. It's, it's beautiful. Um, we've also got uh, Myriophyllum uh, matagorosensis, which mm -hmm. grows up to the surface and then rather than in the sort of classic stem plant, it seems to lie down on the surface and then puts up little yellow uh, flowers. Oh, wow. Um, we've got a, a number of other smaller species. Uh, the helianthum, which used to be, you know, Echinodorus, Bolivianus, mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, we've got Sagittaria. Um, in some rivers, you can find uh, Ludwigia inclinata. Uh, and again, under the tropical sun, it, it goes red, this incredible red that you put it in a fish tank and it just goes, yeah, no, this isn't the sun. I'm going to go green, um, which is frustrating. <laughs> but uh, Mayaca fluviatilis is another plant we've got here. Oh, yes. And uh, recently, I think in some photos I sent you of a lake habitat here, uh, Cabomba furcata, which used to be known as pink Cabomba or Cabomba pioensis. Mm -hmm. um, and that was growing in really tannin-stained, low-light conditions. Ah. Um, so there's a lot of aquatic plants that adapt to uh, habitat here. Another very well-known one in the hobby is the hydrocotyl uh, leucosifolia, which we know is the, the, the pennywort, right. um, which here grows along the banks of lakes and ponds as a sort of carpet growing out of the water and then in the mud along the banks. And then when it floods, obviously, it suddenly has to all race up to the surface. Um, so the dynamic in terms of plants can be completely different depending on the season. But boy, you, you gave some great information there for plant tank people. I mean, we're getting, we get that question. You see these discussions a lot in, in yeah. more in, in, in the in the context of blackwater aquariums. But for for the types of biotopes we like to work with, people always yeah. say, "What plants can you find in these habitats?" And you just gave a a veritable who's who of aquatic plants that are like, you could walk into a lot of aquarium shops around the world and find many of those. So that's really, uh, really cool to hear. Now, I've got to ask you also, and then we'll get to the fish, but uh, bringing us more detail on the, the, the substrate itself. If someone wanted to replicate the, the, the bottom of that material, you'd utilize some of those plants, you'd utilize, I, I mean, yeah. Obviously, I play with botanicals. Is botanical material like leaves and so forth, do you see branches as well? Or is it primarily leaf litter and stuff? Or what do you mainly see botanical-wise? So depending on the, the season, because, again, the flow can, in the, in the dry season, takes away a lot of the, 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 the material that lies on the bottom. Um, but you still find lots of uh, leaves, which have been brought in from the surrounding forest, um, twigs, branches, uh, in the still areas, you'll find lots of palm fronds, like sort of finger palms. Oh, I want to um, I want to interrupt real fast because yeah. palm fronds. I got to give you credit for what credit is due. You know, palm <laughs> fronds have become kind of a thing in this little community of you know botanical people. Yeah. And I, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You you were the first person I, – I know other – you'll say other people did it before you. But you were the first person oh, yeah. that I think really popularized utilizing palm fronds in an aquarium <laughs> to represent that habitat. And 
people just do it as a matter of course now. And I just wanted to give a little appropriate credit for well, where it's due. You. you were our inspiration for. Uh, I'll have to put that sure. on my on my CV. Oh, fun innovator. <laughs> the real the real people need to need to thank for that are the uh, gorilla keepers at London Zoo because <laughs> they used to when I worked there I wanted palm fronds and and, and sort of tannin materials and botanicals uh, for for our tanks and they would go and do their sort of. Uh, gardening jobs within the gorilla enclosure with all these palms and I would sort of go up to them could you um could you cut me you know could you give me any dry material <laughs> and they would turn up with you know 15 kilos of palm fronds and I was like great this is it <laughs> that's fish, awesome you know, fish love them um and it's it's satisfying when I'm out here and I, I sort of swim along and I'm like oh this looks pretty similar to what I set up right in the zoo, you know years ago isn't that um, funny that... you've got a photo that I sent you again if people want to set up a tank a uh, really nice one is the dry heads of papyrus plants. Yes, so, I love that shot. I'll put that up again. Those, yeah, that would be, that'd be really nice. Um, and the water's kind so, of mucky. There, there was like a lot of decomposed material within yeah. the papyrus, and I thought that was fascinating. And those are easy to grow, you know, oh, yeah. for a lot of people. Uh, it, there's a there's actually, I think, a dwarf variety too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But, I mean, it's the sort of thing you could find in a garden center. Yeah. For pond plants. And the, the trick is, you know, to, especially with the dwarf ones, you let them grow up and then the weight of the head causes the plant stem to break and the head falls into the water. Um, and the head then germinates uh, a new plant, puts down roots and a new plant comes out. But this collapsed stem begins to rot away. And that's what you see in a lot of these really shallow habitats, just thousands and thousands of uh, stems uh-huh. of papyrus, sort of in this kind of crisscrossed habitat. Um, and the, the photos that I sent you, I mean, that was, you know, 15 centimeters of water latticed with, uh, papyrus. Oh, wow. Um, and then through, through them all loads of little, uh, serpe tetras, the hypospericonekis. Yes. Um, which, you know, popped out against this sort of browns and greens behind them. And then this bright red of the little fish. It was pretty cool. And, and that's, and you're, you're the perfect segue, Ty, is into the fishes now that you find there, um. Uh, what what do you see perhaps most abundant? Is it mainly kerosens are probably the most abundant fishes that you see, or are there are a yes. lot of what what would be the most abundant single species or type that uh, you well, typically see? Kerosens dominate, uh, and that's part of what my my study is sort of looking at, like why um, there are a lot of species here in the past. Now we've got three hundred and thirty odd species of fish, um, and the majority of those are, are small kerosens. So. In terms of fish that we would recognize from the hobby, um, lots of the, the Serpe tetras, the Matagorosal or Hypospericonekis. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got the local equivalent of the red eye tetra, so the, the Amazonian version, which is Moncasia sanctifilomine. Mm-hmm. Here it's Moncasia forestry, but for all intents and purposes, it looks the same. Right. Um, we've got the Hemigramus ulrei, which is a, a ah, famous uh, fish. The flag then, tetra, um, they call it. Yeah. The black line tetras, yeah. uh, which are beautiful here and the incredible gold to them. Um, and then we've got uh, Hemigramus neptunus, which looks very similar to Hemigramus ocellifa from the Amazon, which is the head and tail like tetra. Ah. Um, uh, cichlids, so dwarf cichlids, Epistogramma trifasciata and Borelli, which are well known within the hobby. Sure. There's also um, Inconspicua and another one but <laughs> yeah. well you can't remember right every now. single species I, i'll give you credit uh, there's quite a few, lots of things like uh pike cichlids so um uh-huh. um 
other tetras, the, the Athiocarax family, so Athiocarax, Nutterarii, Rathbunai, Anizitsai, and then Tarsus, which are the oh, things. You mentioned um, Rathbunai. I didn't, I didn't know that that was found in that environment. That's neat. That's a neat, yeah. that's a pretty fish, isn't it? In the wild, it and must it be is, beautiful. And one of the, one of the, the times that I saw them kind of at their best here, and was something that you could recreate in a tank, which would be really, really cool. Um, they were in a, a flooded meadow with plants that look very similar to, to polygonum. Uh-huh. And the, the meadow had flooded quite recently. And in the first few weeks of the flood, a lot of these uh, plants that are semi-aquatic, they get covered in algae because suddenly they're in shallow water, there's tropical sun. Um, and these lots of these small fish, especially the, the Rathbun stetras, I noticed, uh, moved in to graze the algae off those leaves. Ah. So you had this sort of underwater forest of green stems and leaves. And then here and there, these flitting red-green flashes of these little tetras. Um, and if someone wanted to set that up as a, as a biotype, that would be pretty oh, cool. That sounds um, awesome. Yeah, and, and at lower levels, you could uh, put smaller fish like a Corridorus hastatus, which we've got here. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone who wants more of a, a proper, so let's say, botanical setup, so leaf litter and twigs and a substrate, we've got uh, Corridorus aeneas here, the classic um, bronze cori. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as Pantanalensis, and you see them on these kind of uh, little, little troops of them going across the, the substrate, foraging in, uh, sort of, uh, like going out for the day just to go and explore. And I sort of lie on my belly and just watch them, and they come and forage right around me. Um, and you see them almost flipping over leaves to see what's underneath. And oh, that's cool! Digging away. Um, so there's lots to to inspire an aquarist here. Yeah, and you know, I, I you brought up some interesting points too. I mean, you brought up a ton of information there that I think I think people are going to have to listen to this podcast two or three times, you know, and write down all those names because there's so many familiar fishes. But the question I had, now you're, you're describing all these species that you see. Um, mm. This is a question I always have to people that do field work. Are you seeing these shoaling, are they shoaling together? Are you seeing a mix of fishes? Will you find one species in one area or what is it depend on the niche that you're, you know, the little ecological niche that you're in in there or what, what is the distribution like? Um, So in the the wet season, um, back in November, I was filming underwater and I almost couldn't see in front of me because of the shoals of uh, Serpe Tetra. Oh, wow. um, And mixed in with Hypestabrykan, um, uh, Megalopterus, uh, which is the, the, the phantom tetra. Yes, we call it. We call it the black phantom. The black phantom. The, na- the natural variety is actually red. Oh, really? Um, and they mix with the, the serpes, and then amongst them as well, you've got the the red eye tetras in huge shoals, you know, thousands and thousands, along with lots of other smaller tetras. Um, so that is sort of the boom time for them. Wow! But now in the dry season, um, the shoals are much more reduced. Certain species are absent, um, but again, it tends to be a sprinkling of, you know, uh, black line tetras with some serpent tetras with some corridors mixed in, um, the little data caracin, caracidium laterale, um, they'll be shoaling around with a couple of Rathmans tetras. Oh, wow. So there's no sort of a separation, really. Interesting. Um, they just gel together, and largely that's to avoid being predated. Right. Now, um, I was going to ask you, you know, there, there's a lot of a variety of fishes and we were talking about what you think brings them to that area. Are they, do you, have you done any like gut content analysis on the specimens you brought back to the lab or are you aware of like what their primary food is in that area? What they're eating? Um, is it, is it mostly detritus? Is it epiphytic stuff? Is it insect? 
What what is it? Yeah, my own study. We're not looking at uh, atrophic sort of stomach contents and, mm-hmm. and so on, but observing them in the wild, it is pretty much grazing off anything, uh, particularly you know sunken uh, logs, leaves. Uh, me, when I'm in the water, they come and graze on me, which is. <laughs> It's all right until they discover like a, a, a kite. Then they, then they try and rip it out. Ah. Um, so you have these small tetras. Uh, they will take microorganisms in the water. They will take insects from the surface. Um, so along the edges of many of these uh, streams and, and ponds, there's lots and lots of um, water hyacinths, the, the Icornia crassicis. Mm-hmm. And the roots of that are a fantastic habitat for many, many tetras. Um, and from being in the field, what I realize is on top of the plants, it's just full of uh, flies, small spiders, and grasshoppers. And lots and lots of these fish are taking advantage of this. And as soon as an insect sort of slips or tries to flee a bird that's predating it from above, right. these fish race up and will take it. Um, they're pretty much omnivorous. And that's why, particularly the caracins here, they are so dominant because they can exploit any food resource. They can move into uh, the areas that flood. They're the first ones to move in because they can move into the shallow water. Right. And then the last ones to leave that area because the water has dropped down to a few centimeters. They're still there taking advantage of all the, the, the food items that they wouldn't be able to access during the dry season. Um, you see lots of uh, so cichlids like uh, Satanoperca and Cichlosoma. They're normally sort of munching through the substrates, uh, looking for, for uh, organisms that live there. But again, I've seen them grazing on stuff. Um, Various leperinus here, you see them eating snails. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, there's, a, there's so much... Uh, a lot of diversity. In, ...in diet, yeah. Um, but the smaller fish, the ones that we would typically keep in the, in the tank, they really are omnivorous. They will take absolutely everything. They, I've seen them going for fallen fruit, seeds, um, everything. Well, you know, that, that brings us back to, you know, talking about what we do with aquariums, and I know we've had this discussion before. Um, when we talk from an aquarium standpoint about setting up a tank that is what I call functionally aesthetic, it's not only looks cool, but it to a certain extent performs some aspects, like some aspects of the wild habitat. Yeah. I, I, I can't help but think like when we have decomposing leaves, when we have, you know, seed pods and twigs and stuff and, and you're getting that epiphytic algae and biofilm yeah. and detritus that – I know for a fact I've done experiments where I've, you know, let my tanks go without feeding for many weeks, and the fish are just the kerosens are just as fat and happy as when I started. So they're eating something. They're eating that material. They must be incredibly adaptable fishes. And I would imagine, you know, in an aquarium, there's so many possibilities, right? I mean, yeah, and and, and as you said, you know, they're, they're fat and healthy. And, and one of the sort of things I notice here is the colors of the tetras here out of this world. So the surface tetras, they're incredibly, incredibly red. Um, and it's likely down to diet. They're consuming so much protein in terms of, you know, uh, microorganisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and as also there's been lots of vegetation in terms of algae and so on, which they are, are taking from amongst the leaf litter and grazing off sunken branches. And then if you can create that uh, in a tank, so, you know, having a fairly thick layer of botanicals, um, like in your your neon tetra tank, having right. a biofilm growing over stuff, they will just graze on that, and they, you will get more in terms of uh, color and, and health, and also natural behavior out of those fish. You know, it's I, I always find it a bit sad when I, I've 
I go and look at a tank where the fish sort of slightly listless until someone goes to feed. Yeah. And then they get active because there's nothing really for them to interact with or do. Say it's, you know, a, um, a classic, you know, colored gravel and a, a sunken castle or whatever. Right. Um, but if you've got organic material in there that's breaking down s- slowly and getting covered in algae and, and there's microorganisms uh, producing in amongst it and feeding off it, those fish will all day be hunting things down and looking for things that... I had a tank with some uh, sparkling gorillas. Mm-hmm. I remember that tank. It just, yeah, it just had some roots, and I just put loads and loads of Indian almond leaves in. And I spent hours watching them go in under the leaves into the dark spaces and hunting down small creatures. And then some thrashing around and, and emerging. And their colors were just incredible. Yeah. And I thought, I've used two ingredients, uh, a branch and one kind of leaf. And I'm getting more in terms of natural behavior and uh, aesthetic uh, you know the colors out of these fish than many you know high-end yeah. aquascapes with you know CO2 and plants. Right. Well, you know, it's funny, as you know, I I, I respect that variety of of aquarium. But when people Mm -hmm. proffer that as that's how nature is, no, that absolutely is is not. I mean, there's natural processes going on in that tank. Sure. I can't argue that. But when you're diving in what you're or or snorkeling or whatever you're doing in, in, in this muck and detritus and so forth, and you compare that to one of these clinically sterile aquariums and, you know, there, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect there. And I'm glad that uh, – that's one of the things I'm most pleased about is that we're presenting a lot of your photos and really trying to convince people. And you've been – you know, as a hobbyist too, uh, I'm going to give you a little pat on the back. You were kind of at the forefront of this, you know, use nature as your inspiration, unfiltered nature, you know, the way it is, not editing it down to our, our you know, interpretation of what it should be. And, you know, it's just amazing to see your photos and see how inspiring those are. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. It's, um, partly it's, it's luck. You know, I've been lucky enough to travel to a few different places around the world. I've been in the Amazon. I've seen African habitats and, and, and uh, Philippines as well. And, you know, then working in London Zoo, I learned a lot from the, the people there. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because they had uh, mastered the art of neglect. that's not a negative neglect benign neglect where where they set up a a sort of biotope and they resisted the the aquascapers urge to get in and you know tweak it so it just looks Ah. like you know the angle of the the thing is just right or you know just get that algae off that patch they just let things happen right and I learned from being there and watching how that team worked and watching how those tanks developed that that was the best way to see the fish the colors were great they were healthy um and, and they, they were living really good lives, considering that they're in glass boxes in a, you know, central London right. institute. Right. Um, and that inspired me a lot. So, well, how can, how can we, how can I share this with, with other people? Uh, and, and as your mission as well, you know, you, you are showing people, you know, all different texts, all of them have their, their place, but look what you could do being inspired by a natural habitat and look how it will actually benefit your fish and at the same time look aesthetically really cool. It's it's different and unusual. And when you set up something that recreates nature, it tends to look good because nature is just really good at making things beautiful. You're turning into my spokesperson here. This sounds great. (laughs) No, No, but but I agree. I agree. Um, You know, and thanks. And you mentioned something real quick. I'll interrupt one more time. When you said you know, the, the quote unquote neglect, you know, that's what happens is the tanks sort of evolve on their own. I mean, as things break down 
the aquascape is not static from a from a purely aesthetic standpoint. It's a very dynamic right. environment, right? I mean, you're seeing palm fronds, leaves, all these things break down. They get coated with biofilms or whatever, and it's constantly evolving. And I think if people just leave it be, um, there's exactly. so much to see. And I mean, it's one of the. It can be hard to resist the, the, the temptation to get your hands in the tank and to mess around with it, but. Uh, or perhaps a way of uh, dealing with that is um, so it's your your tanks where you can slowly flooding your igapod tank and then yeah. letting it put so any uh, sort of South American wetlands or Amazon tank if you've got the opportunity to raise and drop the water level that's really cool exactly um, especially if you've got botanicals you know sticking out branches because as they dry out you know they they, they, they change colours and so on and then flooding them again then again you've got that boom of biofilm and, and microorganisms uh, uh, erupting and the fish will respond to that as well um, and you can do that without sort of going in and, and, and re-aquascaping everything right it's a way of and it, and it feels really cool it's like oh I've got a you know a wet season going on in a, the living room a real 365 <laughs> a 365 day dynamic I mean a real yeah. functional aquascape and it's funny you know I was telling you about the, the Igapo or, or the actually the Varzea one that I'm playing with uh, I was able to obtain these uh, specimens that originate from Campo Grande, these annual South American killifish that we were talking yeah. about, and I'm really looking forward to getting those fish in the tank and letting the letting it you know dry out, taking the fishes out, obviously, letting the eggs incubate um, for their six to eight or ten weeks, whatever it is. I have to research that again, but and seeing what happens, and I, I think that there's a complete dynamic that people can really enjoy, especially in small aquariums where you can do this easily. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about that. What? What? Now that that gets me back to the, the fish geek in you. What? Um, yeah. If what? You, I know you have some tanks down there. You you probably don't have as much time as you used to. But what? It, what's the tank you're eager to set up? If you were going to do something right now, what, what's your like favorite idea for an aquarium right now? Okay, so uh, medium sized tank would probably be that one I mentioned to you about having the full of polygonum mm-hmm. uh, and, and leaf litter at lower levels and a decent group of uh, Aphiopharyx raffunae, the raffunus tetras, mm-hmm. just because it's the kind of tank that you have to sit in front of and take time to observe the fish. You know, they'll, they'll be slightly cryptic, they'll be exhibiting natural behaviours, but you need to sit still and watch, and then they will reward you. Um, and their colours are, are stunning as they, as they mature yeah. and settle in. If you, I was doing uh, a larger tank, it would probably be... Uh, Again, leaf litter base, maybe with some uh, helianthum growing out here and there through the leaves, um, and the big shoal of the the serpentaceous, the hypospericum equis, um, just because you know you can't you can't beat them. These little red gems, right? Uh, and again, in, in tannin stained waters, mm-hmm. the colours are something else. Um, I would imagine. And it's it's interesting when we take live specimens. Uh, and we place them in an aquarium after taking them out of the habitat. When we photograph them at the moment of taking them out of the water in the wild, we're wowed by their colours. I'm thinking, yeah, let's let's we'll get these some of these in the lab tank. We'll, we'll get them breeding and so on. And we put them in the lab tank, and they just fade out into <laughs> this sort of drab because it's not a tannin stained you know environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you can recreate that habitat. Yeah. And we'll get the best out of the fish, and and yeah, that's the kind of tech I'd set up something simple but that has impact. Yeah, that that sounds awesome. I mean, and that and that's I think what I'm liking about what's happening in the 
at least in our little corner of the aquarium hobby right now, is that people are starting to look at, you know, like the, the pictures that you take. They're looking at videos that, you know, you and Ivan McColgy and Mike Tucanardi and people that have been to those places and share these videos. We're yeah. able to see those environments as they are. So suddenly we're realizing this is where our fish really come from. Wouldn't yeah. it benefit them to try something a little different? And we're making that mental shift now. Instead of forcing the fishes to adapt to what we think is the appropriate environment for them, we're saying, wait, let's try to replicate on some levels where they come from and adapt our, you know, our preferences, our tastes to looking exactly. at that. And I think that really is a sort of a paradigm shift in the hobby. I mean, it borderlines what some of the biotope people are doing, but I think the things you and I are talking about here, take it a little further. It's a little more functional. Um, yep. And I like that. And um, oh, I had one more question too about the leaf litter. Sure. Um, I don't, maybe you can tell me in the wild and both in your aquarium thoughts, but in the wild, have you ever bothered to just like sort of eyeball how deep you think the leaf litter layer is in some of these areas that you've investigated? Any yeah, idea? Um, I frequently uh, realize how deep it is because I sink up to my knees. <laughs> uh, so often when we're doing uh, field work, we glide over a sort of a lagoon and the water's really clear. We think, right, this is the place to get out and do collection. We, we get into the water um, and we think, oh, we, we can see the bottom. Uh, it's not too deep. And then you, you jump in and up to your knees or up to your waist, you oh, just wow. disappear into sedimented leaves. Wow. Uh, yeah. So like and a meter thick or, or more maybe potentially. Yeah. And that's accumulated. You know, I had thought, because I asked my supervisor about this. So is this, you know, from years and years of being here? And he said, you know yourself in the, in the dry season, all of this is taken away by the, the increased current. This is just what's accumulated in the last few months, basically, from the surrounding forest and wow. the surrounding grasslands. Um, so, yeah, anything from, you know, two centimeters to two or three feet wow. is, is fine. Wow. Um, it's, uh, and it, again, it depends on, on the habitat, depends on the substrate that's underneath it. Right. Um, it depends on whether the, the it's a, a lake or a pool that's disconnected from, from the main rivers. Um, but yeah, it can be really deep. Um, and you find particularly lots of the, the, the dwarf cichlids, the epistogramma, uh, seem to live under several uh, centimeters of this stuff. Uh, lots of small catfish and corridors found in there. Um, so yeah, if you if someone wants to recreate something at home, uh, several centimeters or several inches rather of uh, leaf litter would be totally fine. That's great. And, and I think... I I have a theory and I have nothing to back it up because I've never really tested, but I can't help but wonder if to some extent maybe there's some biological processes like denitrification or at the very least there's a good uh, microfauna population in a, in a deep leaf litter bed in an aquarium. I can't yeah, help I mean, but wonder. If you think of a, like your classic canister filter where you've got um, – uh, material like ceramic material or whatever surface area that's colonized by bacteria that are busy filtering the water so bacteria would feed on breaking down leaves which have surface area that they colonize and if you've got a bed of leaf litter in your tank you've actually perhaps come up added <laughs> added more filtration right um as long as this you know it's, it doesn't become aerobic or anything but um yeah it will improve the the water quality as as long as you know it's it, 
Yeah. Uh, aerobic. Well, um, with common so, sense maintenance, I mean, I think you can maintain yeah. these aquariums indefinitely by replenishing leaves as they break down or, or, or whatever, but just keeping them, the tank on, you know, not overpopulated, not overfeeding. Um, yeah. I mean, we have to think of obviously in the context the of closed. Uh, the habitat compared to tank at home. Right. Um, one of the things I used to do, uh, even some of your botanicals, is that I'd have them in for a couple of months. And then just before things started to really fall apart, break down, I'd take things out. And I would put them in my airing cupboard and let them dry out for a week uh-huh. and then re-add them. Oh, good idea. Um, yeah, and then you could do that with palm fronds for years. Yeah, almost. that's um, true. So, and you find that once you've re-dried them, even if they've almost broken down, then they really stay uh, together. The structure doesn't break um, when you reintroduce them to the tank for quite a while. You can just keep keep doing that. Um, and that's, that's one of the... A little tip. I found. Yeah, a little hot tip. Adding adding new material is is also vital because you know you need that, that stuff breaking down. Um, You're replenishing, replenishing it, and, and also just for the, the joy of it. Like, right. You know, when you add new seed pods and see the fish kind of going and checking them out or whatever. Right. Um, and I wanted to say you were you were about the paradigm shift about you know moving away from more traditional ideas of the aquarium. Um, and a lot of what we're talking about to many fish keepers seems sort of revolutionary. This right. idea of, you know, actually in a, in a little 60 meter, 60 centimeter tank, sorry, um, we can recreate a, a natural looking habitat that represents very closely an Amazonian stream or a Pantanal pool. And if you think that the hobby has been going on more for more than 100 years, and yeah. it's taken this long for, for someone to go, well, actually, yeah, well, obviously that would benefit the fish because that's what they live in. <laughs> Yeah. Um, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, yeah, it blows my mind sometimes to think about that. And <clears throat> we, we need to try and get more people to, to, to become interested in this part because it also raises the questions, as you mentioned earlier, where do my fish come from? What is right. their natural habitat? Um, oh, actually, that habitat is in danger. For example, right. There's a whole conservation element um, that, you know, even just a small amount of awareness, uh, setting up a natural tank tends to mean that people go and research about the origins of their fish and habitats and then they realize you know what's going on in those in those areas as well um and which from a sort of uh, my point of view which is a conservationist scientist perspective it's like i want to i want a biotope tank in every house right with botanicals right kids getting interested and reading up about what's going on in, in in the place of origin of those species right um and I think that a lot of people who, you know, are already keen hobbyists and maybe have some uh, young kids who are interested, don't don't get the colored gravel and the, the shipwreck. Get them interested in setting up, let's recreate, let's recreate a small agree. stream from the Amazon. You um, know, I, I agree. That's vital. Well, don't you think, too, if, if people were indoctrinated, like, I can't help but think, for example, in the aquariums that, that we play with, when people that are not familiar with aquariums walk into my home or my office and they, they see these mucky looking black water tanks <laughs> and they say, wow, that's amazing. They're, yeah. they're amazed when an aquarist walks in, they're like, Oh, you need to change your filter or, you know, someone that's not yeah. familiar with it. So it's, it's really funny how, but, but the people that get it, you know, the, the, yeah. when you, once they realize, Oh, this is what nature really looks like. Even the, the hardcore experienced aquarist kind of says, Okay, I understand. Some people may not like the aesthetic, but they understand the the thought behind it. And I think getting non-aquarium people to understand this is, like you said, it's a key to getting them to understand 
the natural habitat yeah. and the pressures they face and, and, you know, how amazing they really are. And I, and I have, um, you know, I know we're, we're running a little low on time, but I wanted to, one more thing. Uh, what's the status that you're seeing on the, the fires down there? I know it's pretty bad right yeah. now and it's August 26, 2019. And then maybe if someone listens to this in six months, it'll be a different story. But what, what's going yeah. on right now? Um, well, where I am in near to the, the Pansal region, I'm two, two, over 2,500 or more kilometers from the Amazon basin. And at the beginning of the week, I was thinking, wow, the, the sunsets are amazing this week. And it's the smoke uh, that's coming from uh, the north. Um, so it's a, it's a huge, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a disaster on an epic, epic scale. Um, and unfortunately, although the Amazon is, 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 I want to say outside of Brazil, it's obviously very valued and inside Brazil, it, it's a very sort of a nationalistic thing of all oh, the Amazon is at the heart of Brazil, but not the majority of Brazilians don't live in the Amazon. Right. So they don't, they don't see the fires. They don't see the impact. They don't realize they live in mega cities or in sort of the interior small towns. Right. And out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Yeah. Except that when Sao Paulo goes dark at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, because right. of smoke from fires 2,700 kilometers away, uh, as awful as it is, I'm sort of pleased it kind of happened. Well, it wakes That's people up. Because, yeah, people are getting, uh, the government has now authorized the army to go in and, and try and do things. Um, it's difficult because it's been a very dry year. Mm-hmm. Fires are do occur naturally, but the rate of fires um, and the, the spread of them is is really difficult because people are going in and doing slash and burn. Um, but the, 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 I mean, the question is, you know, how a lot of the people who are who are doing this are not, you know, big uh, agro business people. They are small. Uh, smallholders, uh, people in the middle of the Amazon who've got really no livelihood apart from growing a few manioc or, or maize uh, plants in a, mm-hmm. in a few acres of the Amazon. What do you say to those people? So, oh, right. you, you need to go to jail because you've cut down you know, four acres or burned four acres of forest to right. feed your family. We need to find ways to you know, offer uh, you know, alternative incomes. Right. Um, but I am glad that the world's attention is, is, is being pulled towards this because it's something that's been going on for a number of years. But this year, particularly, it's 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 really uh, gone crazy. I mean, you in California know about yeah. how fire is 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 also is a natural process, except when it's not. Yeah, <laughs> and, well, uh, you know, we don't talk well, about frequent. it. We don't talk about it until it becomes a big thing. And and I think yeah. now, you know, with the eyes of you know, they, they call that what the Amazon the lungs of the planet. You know, suddenly yeah. this becomes, you know, on everybody's mind and you think, wow, there's there's a big issue here. This is a problem. So, yeah, it is. It's a tragedy, but it's it's, it's nice to see that people are now maybe taking greater interest in all of this, this whole environment. And I hope maybe people educate themselves, you know. Exactly. And, and the more people, you know, read about it. And one of the things that might save the situation is that the, the, the big agribusiness uh, lobby here have suddenly realized that if the Amazon <laughs> – burns down <laughs> the rest of the country won't get any rain right and then they won't have be able to have their soya plantations and the grass for the cattle um and actually they are starting to say hang on a minute we need the government needs to go and do something <laughs> because otherwise we risk billions and billions of dollars uh, always lost. comes down to that unfortunately but exactly you know and yeah but that is at least you know it, it's hard being a scientist and sort of jumping up and down and being like we we told you so 
but until it's literally burning a hole in your pocket, a lot of people aren't, aren't going right. to Right, right. But, you know, I think, and again, I think getting back to something more uplifting, at, at the very least in our little neck of the geeky aquarium hobby world, you know, it's nice to be able to see people taking more of an interest in the, in the, the natural habitats yes. and, and replicating them. And I think, you know, again, every time a kid sees one of these for the first time and gets excited like you and I did when we were kids, it, it suddenly becomes a thing to them and, and they want to learn more about it. And you, you, what is the old expression? You, you, pre, you protect what you treasure. You know, and, yeah. and I and I think that's real. People understand that there's more to it than just a you know a, a pond or a jungle or whatever. That's all these miles exactly. away. It's all it's all interconnected. So I think our, our little hobby does does some good, and I and I, I hope we can continue to do that. And, um, and boy, I think we are a force for for good because a lot of a lot of people who are in, into the hobby are, are are into it because they're passionate about nature. Agreed. Um, and it might be that they live in a mega city, and the only bit of nature they have access to is their little uh, forty liter nanotech exactly in their apartment but that is that is so vital it's so human for us to reach out for that um and the more people we can say look you could do this too um the better exactly and i know you know and and again that's where uh, knowing you as a scientist and hobbyist is great because you kind of bridge both worlds very effectively the academic and the hobby world and you're getting us, I mean, just this, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this podcast. There was so much good information you gave us. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be on again multiple times. You know that you're, you're trapped well, now. You're pleasure. good. You're in, you're in our system now because I'm sure people are going to have tons of questions on this and, and a uh, lot of discussion. Yeah, you do. And I really appreciate that you go out there and engage with, uh, with our community. I mean, it's just, it's so great that you're out there in the field and I didn't even begin to touch with you about water conditions and the chemistry. I mean, there's a whole nother topic we could probably talk about. Sure. Um, and we will. So yeah, we absolutely will. But, um, but this has been, Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. I was, I was going to say, you'll never have a problem getting me to, to talk about. <laughs> uh, Good. I arrived in, in my lab here in, in the university here. And um, I was a bit hesitant. Oh, am I going to be the real, the real fish? You know, <laughs> the guy is going on. And my team and my supervisor, I mean, they know, they've studied, uh, biology at undergraduate level as well and right the fraction that i know about fish they know you know so much more but i I have that accurate perspective right so i get to sort of talk and and you'll never shut me up talking about fish which is great i would love to be on again and talk more about fish and habitats and it's a real pleasure i think we will ty i think maybe next time well you know what we may do next time is we may uh maybe ahead of time We'll get a list out there of some of the major species that you see that also happen to be in the aquarium sure. trade, and maybe we could put that up, you know, out on social media and let people talk about what questions they have about those particular fish, and we can maybe feed you some audience questions about, you know, what this what fish is found where, what are they eating, how they act, you know, okay. that'd be fun. That would be fantastic. So we'll we'll look into that, but. I just wanted to thank you again so much for uh, for spending part of your your afternoon or evening now I guess now with us and um, people really uh, I hope will get a lot out of this this episode and uh, again uh, thanks for all the photos uh, people are going to keep uh, keep bugging us about you know what plants are down there and I think you've given us a great start some great information so uh, you know thanks again for uh, taking the time and. I want to thank, thank you very much for having me on. No problem. And, and thanks again to everybody that's tuning in. And uh, we're going to wrap it up here. We look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.